The rise of digital media has made it possible to access all manner of information, from news headlines to sports scores to the latest updates from our friends on social media, whenever and wherever we like. It seems also to have made it harder than ever to engage in the type of deep contemplative reading that's been central to human culture and progress throughout the modern era. Has the rise of screens undermined our ability to read well? If so, what's been lost as a result? And what role might schools play in stemming the tide? I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and my guest today is Doug Lamov, managing director of Uncommon Schools and author of Teach Like a Champion and Reading Reconsidered. You can find Doug's latest contribution to Ed Next, a review of neuroscientist Marianne Wolf's new book, Reader Come Home, on the journal's website at educationnext.org. Doug, welcome back to the Ednext podcast. Uh, it's great to be back with you. Thanks for having me. So it's now commonplace, I think, to bemoan the fact that we're all reading less in the digital age. But you mm-hmm. note, echoing Wolf, that the more important issue may be that we're reading differently. How so? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's absolutely true. I think that a phrase that Wolf herself has used is, skimming is the new normal that we re- as we read increasingly on screens, I think we've underestimated the degree to which the change in environment changes the way that we read and relatedly the way that we think. Not only, well, the way that we read and the way that we're capable of reading, which is we read in a state of constant partial distraction. When we're on our screens, we're socialized to, come, to wait for the next new bit of information to, to come in, to distract us, to intrigue us. And so, um, we're always waiting for that, and, I, I, and we're always we're less focused, we're less meditative, we're less contemplative, and I think you probably notice this in your own reading, the struggle to sustain uh, a linear read through the text that you read online. And so this, this is a problem in and of itself, which is we, students today and we ourselves don't read deeply like we did when we were students, when we would sit down and read something and lose ourselves in it for half an hour or an hour. Um, but I think Wolf's point is that over, you know, there is no reading center to the brain. When we learn to read, we repurpose other aspects of our our brains, and, and that notion of neuroplasticity. The result of that is that the way we wire our brains is a response to the way that we read. And if we read in a state of constant partial distraction, we come to think that way, and we come to expect to read that way, and we lose the capacity to read in a sustained focus way like we used to. And I think that's devastating for us to think about as, as educators and as, as parents. Yeah, Wolf argues that the human brain isn't pre-wired to read, that rather the mm-hmm. emergence of reading culture amounts to a sort of collective rewiring of all of our brains that occurs each generation, I guess, but only occurred when writing and print became widespread. And and so there may be a connection to what's happening with our ability to read deeply and our ability to think deeply. I think it's one of the most fascinating parts of our argument, the idea that we came to think differently when print spread across, you know, when, when print became democratized and people learned to read, we began to think differently and behave differently people, we became more rational, more steady, more capable of considering the perspective of others, because what you do when you read a text is you think deeply through the lens of the other. And so this made us more rational in response to other people and um, changed the way we thought. I think her argument 
awareness that as we as we lose that, we are at risk of becoming more impulsive, more skittish in our thinking, because that's the way that we read. You know, she makes great points about, you know, it's not just concentration, that um, the empathy and the deep thinking that come from the spaces in between your reading when you are, you pause after reading several, after reading several paragraphs and think deeply, as opposed to checking what else is on your phone, but those are critical moments uh, in the experience of reading. And that's all changing. Now, of course, the rise of digital media isn't all bad. It's opened up new forms of communication, even of education, that permit readers or maybe more accurately, I guess, consumers to engage with content in powerful ways. Is it possible in your view that the good outweighs the bad, that we should just count our blessings rather than worrying about what's been lost? I think it's a great point. And I think one of the dangers is that we have so, so far overlooked the critical nature of the downsides because the upsides are so compelling and frankly not only compelling but addictive the upsides are addictive uh but i guess i would say a better question is uh, then which which one is which one is more important is how do we maximize the benefits of technology and minimize the downsides because they're both real and I guess one potential answer to that question is to turn to the role of schools, right? That they could be the ones that help uh, us get the best of both worlds. And as I read her book, Wolf seems to envision schools as uh, perhaps the natural locus for efforts to create readers who are bilingual in the sense of being able to switch in a conscious manner between digital and print media. Um, this raises at least two questions. One is, are schools currently playing that role? And the second is, could they? What would it look like? Yeah. So how do, how do you look at those questions? Start with sort of, are schools currently playing that role? Maybe if, if you'll forgive me, I'll start with the second question <laughs> first, which is, I think that this is, I think that they are definitely positioned to make a difference. In fact, possibly ideally positioned, possibly singularly positioned in our society to make a difference because the way that we read now is, Device culture is fundamentally a collective phenomenon. Uh, I say this as a parent, uh, and a parent who's very skeptical of the uh, of the influence of phones on my children's lives. And there's a part of me that wants to say, "You're going to be the one kid here without a phone," but that is not feasible uh, for a variety of reasons. You know, uh, uh, one, you would be making a uh, a massive choice for them socially. No one is going to start calling them on their landline or writing them handwritten notes when they all when all their friends decide by a text that they're going to get together next time or place. But of course, that's how kids do homework now, and it's how they have conversations. It's how they um, information is shared about the work that they're doing. And in fact, uh, you know, uh, school districts are now increasingly giving every kid a laptop so that all work is inherently done on screen. This is really difficult for me. My district did this, and you know, my, my rule at home has been homework. Homework, homework is a non-screen-based activity whenever possible, uh, and that suddenly ended when the school essentially mandated that every every homework that homework be done on screens. So I think because screen life is collective in its in the interaction, it requires a collective solution. You can't individually decide to opt out of it, except at massive cost. And so schools are the schools are the 
because it has a collective influence on young people to set collective parameters and structure the collective life of students. So I think they should be in position to do, but I think the phrase I used in the review is that I read Wolf's section on how education could mitigate the challenges of technology with increasing despondency, which is I just, I'm skeptical that schools can see themselves or have the capacity to do the kind of work that is necessary to make the changes that uh, would be required. It's more common, it seems, for them to adopt technology almost reflexively, sort of what's new has to be better, and that's how you get the one-to-one laptop policies and the burdens that that places, in your case, on uh, the family's ability to make decisions about these things. Yeah, they're clamoring to put more technology, more screens in the classroom, and promising parents we will, you know, we will embed technology in everything your child does. And what I keep thinking is I'm looking for a school that will tell me what, how they, as much about how they insulate my child from the constant influence, constant access to technology as uh, embedded. I'm pretty sure it's embedded in our lives already. But I would really like to see a school that says, there's going to be 90 minutes a day, and there, there's not going to be a screen in sight, and they're going to read and write a sustained focus or it doesn't look any different than it did in the 19th century, I'd be really happy with that. I think attention and focus are, are hidden drivers of success in school and, and uh, the ability to produce and construct things in life. And so um, I have no problem with schools having technology in them and there being moments when technology is a part of students' lives, but there also should be moments in students' lives when they are when they build the discipline of sustained focus concentration that is not disrupted by technology. And um, that requires probably pushing back on expectations, reshaping expectations of society. I think most parents now think that technology is a good thing. They want technology education for their kids. And so um, schools would have to change that perception. And they have to have the capacity and the willingness to defend times, at least during the day, that were tech-free. And I think that is a, it's a challenging thing to do and, a, and something that most schools have not shown an appetite to do. As a practical matter, what would that look like when it's done well? You mentioned a 90-minute reading block or screen-free time. What are other concrete steps that school leaders could consider if they want to play a role in solving this problem? Yeah, well, I think the key, the key here is intentionality. So there, there, are, two, there are two ways that screens get into get into kids' lives. Either the school introduces them or they allow the kids to introduce them themselves. So I know a I know a school district near me that um, where you know, kids pretty consistently have their um, have their phones out during the day. So they're constantly distracted when they should be reading because they can glance on the phone, they're texting each other and they're checking sports scores and they're doing all the things that um, we're doing when we're distracted by them. They're doing that during the school day. And so they're in a constant state of distraction. So the first thing that a school needs to do is have the capacity to follow through on some sort of reasonable restrictions about when and where those devices show up in the classroom. And then the second issue is then, do I want to be intentional about when, as a school, I introduce those things? Do I want to have times that are strictly paper to pencil as opposed to, uh, we're working on a screen while we write this? Um, and so I think those are two separate issues. They both require um, the ability to implement with fidelity, and I just think those are very hard things to those are very hard things to do. The district that I was mentioning, they they tried to restrict uh, expectations.
think they wanted to have kids put their phone in a sort of, you know, in a holder by the door so that they could have phone-free classes where the kids weren't distracted by their own technology. And I think that they struggled to get teachers to be able to or willing to follow through with it. And after, and two weeks after the announcement was made that they were going to do this, the idea was all but dead. So we've been focusing on the role of schools and therefore on sort of children as readers. Um, But, you know, I think the issue is much broader than that, right? It really applies to all of us. And in fact, your review starts by blaming its readers for the fact that reading is losing the collective battle for attention. And you conclude by noting that the only flaw in Wolf's book is its reader. I assume you don't have K-12 students in mind when you make that allegation. So, you know, what advice do you have for those of us who feel that we're losing our ability to engage with printed texts, especially books, and you are concerned about what that means for our own ability to think deeply and well? Yes, one of the hardest things about this, which is we're a, gener- we're, uh, a generation of addicts raising other addicts. Uh, I don't know that I have advice for other people, but I can share the things that I've been thinking about and struggling with someone who deeply values what I think that I'm, that I'm losing. You know, Wolf tells a story in her book about um, this, uh, one of her favorite novels that she read in college and always found it this touchstone of deep thought and she went back to it and, and to try and read it and found she could she just couldn't sustain the concentration deep reading necessary to engage the book anymore and she it's like within a few years it had slipped away from her and I, I feel that constant when I'm reading. That was a uh, powerful section of the book for me uh, because I consider the book she discusses, Magister Ludi by Herman Hesse, uh, to be perhaps the most difficult book that I've ever engaged in shortly after college. And I haven't done her experiment of going back to it now, but uh, mainly that's because I'm afraid that I know what that experiment would show. I'm not sure that I could tackle it in the same manner that I did uh, just a yes, couple fun. of decades ago. Sadly for me, it probably doesn't have to be Magister Ludi to, to, to prove a point for me. You know, I feel myself struggling with this with everything that I read. And so, um, you know, I've been thinking a lot about in my own life how to, uh, how to mitigate the damage that I think is being done to me. So a couple of things that I've done. Um, one, I've just been really intentional about not having my phone in the same room with me when I'm reading. And... You know, I, I don't think that I can. I think the key is to have sustained periods of time when I when I read steadily and write steadily without my phone anywhere near. So I try and do that every day for at least an hour. Um, I try and do a combination of, of reading and I, I now keep. I've gone back to keeping something that I kept when I was younger, which is a commonplace journal, where I take notes on what I'm reading, which causes me to reflect deeply on it um, because I think it disciplines my brain, so I'm not skittishly. Um, replicating the um, I'm not replicating the skittishness that my brain has learned to do from my phone that gives me something constructive and meditative to do in an intentional way in the interim spaces when I'm reading and so try and read steadily for an hour a day at least without my phone in the room taking notes and writing down key passages and reflecting on them in a journal and I try to do that every day and um, and then I would just say, you know, like, with my with my kids, I try to do the same thing, which I would love for them to read all day. But if I have to choose, I would rather have them read 
for an hour a day, or say 45 minutes a day without their phone than 90 minutes a day with their phone sitting there next to them in a state of distraction. So I'm, I'd say that I've become much more conscious of the environment in which I read, and I think that's, uh, that's as important as how much I read. And then I just, as I'm reading, I'm, you know, consciousness can be curative, which is I'm just aware of the moments when I start skimming, when I start jumping down the page, when I start to engage in less deep reading phenomena. I'm just trying to note when I do it and force myself to go back and read again and read slowly and not skip down to the page and not skim across, et cetera, et cetera. And I'll say that, you know, interestingly, Wolf, the second part of the story about Magister Moody is that she goes back and she reads it three times and on the third reading she's kind of able to get back to something that feels like where she was several decades ago. And so um, uh, it's possible, <laughs> but it's a lot of work. I think it's one of those things that's cured, that's cured by, by building a habit, right? Uh, an intense three intense readings of, uh, of a complex novel is probably infeasible, but if I can, if I can build habits of healthy discipline in an hour a day, but that's what I'm going to shoot for. And I guess, interestingly, I mean, I think that's kind of what I'm arguing for what schools should do, which is more, the key thing is to have sustained, it's not so much to eradicate technology and say there should not be technology in schools. There are clearly times when it's, when it's valuable and it should be in there, but there also should be intentional times, sustained times when there when there's no technology and there's only reading and writing and discussing with people. And My guest today has been Doug Lamoff, Managing Director of Uncommon Schools and author of Teach Like a Champion. You can find his review of Marianne Wolf's new book online at educationnext.org. Doug, thanks for being part of the podcast. Thanks for having me, Marty. You've been listening to the Ednext Podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss an episode. While you're there, be sure to check out our archive and especially if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners to find us.